Hey guys, Luke Mahalik here. Welcome to the DFD or Dairy Farming Discussions podcast. Here, we want to discuss all things dairy farming. This podcast is about getting information out that is going to help your dairy operations succeed. Our goal is to bring you timely information on beneficial topics. We plan to bring in some of the top names from the industry to share on the topics they have studied and more importantly, are passionate about sharing with you, the listeners. I hope everyone enjoys this week's episode and thanks for listening. Hey guys, Luke Mahalik here. Welcome back to the DFD podcast. It's uh, good to be on again. I had a little bit of a break there on the last episode and got away for some holidays with the family. So uh, good to be back on. Um, I know you guys were talking corn silage two weeks ago and today we're going to go a little more practical with it. So we're going to talk some of the keys and, and tips and tricks for uh, making silage. Uh, today is September 1st. So silage, depending where you are in the province, is could be starting this week or in the next two to three weeks, depending where you are. So I think this is about as perfect timing as we can get to get some tips out. So Keith, do you want to just say hi to everyone out there and kind of let us know what's going on down your way a bit? Yeah. Hi, everybody. Uh, yeah, it's good to be back. It's good to have you back, Luke. Um, it's really, uh, you know, it's really one of my favorite times of year here getting into corn silage season. Uh, you know, we're going to probably try and make some of the best uh, forage we can and and set our uh, and you know set yourselves up for success for the rest of the year i know uh with some incentives and things like that it's always a it's always a, a real happy time of year around farm country when guys get chopped corn silage so perfect well before we get started here i do want to say that we have bill woodley on today but before we introduce bill what uh, what are you guys looking at for timing down your way keith uh, so it depends where you are i think a lot of the places uh through lambton and and kind of West Middlesex are looking at uh, next week, uh, probably early to mid next week. I know we've got a chipper day coming up uh, in the Thedford area on Friday. And I know there's a chipper day in Mitchell on the following Friday. So we're going to be in that kind of neck of the woods, you know, the second, third week of uh, September, just depending on planning dates and depending on uh, how long of a, how many heat unit corn people planted right so i know the trend is to maybe plan a little bit longer day on the silage stuff so that might push your harvest date back a little bit but uh other than that uh yeah i I see some on twitter there are some people uh just starting to get into it so i know we're at the early stages here but i think uh most uh most silage will be coming off you know mid next week so yeah i would i would agree with that i think we're usually about a week behind you guys so that lines up pretty well with what uh, we're seeing up here in fergus um I would say two to three weeks is kind of what I'm hearing uh, being out yesterday and last week there. Uh, so I think we're, we're just right around the corner and there will be guys, depending what corn they planted and when they planted, uh, could be starting this week, could be starting two to three weeks. So I think we're right in that time frame. So anyway, today uh, we have an awesome guest. Uh, one of the, probably one of the first people I actually met when I started. Bill Woodley is on today. So Bill, why don't you give us a little bit of your history and background and then we'll, uh, we'll get started with the podcast here. Thanks very much, Luke. Thanks, Keith. I actually worked for Suregain uh, for 37 years. Then I decided to retire and then just form my own little company, just myself as the only employee, and that's called Woodley Dairy Direction. So my focus really has been on training and and teaching and understanding fiber and starch and some of those things. So that's kind of my my main background. What are some of the things you're doing with with regards to that, Bill? I know you're you're pretty busy every time I talk to you, you're kind of jet setting around the world before pre COVID. So yeah, the key thing is I'm working on right now is, is understanding fiber digestibility. It's kind of the key thing. So as we launch into this corn silage talk, you have to understand that corn silage really 
is two main components, and that's fiber and starch. And if you look at starch, starch honestly is very highly digestible, likely 98% digestible, but the fiber is the tricky part. So we're gonna really delve into corn silage and understand how, how it is, what it is, how it breaks down, and what the advantages are for the cow. So you kind of just answered the first question there uh, that I was going to ask yeah. was what is what is corn silage and you kind of broke that down. So do you want to dig in maybe a little bit more uh, to the fiber side of it? You're just saying starch is very available, very um, readily yeah. available to the cows. So let's maybe talk a little bit about fiber digestion and what that looks like, and then we can dig in a little bit more to some of the more practical steps of silage. But okay, so I should start off with that. Um, Corn silage is a very unique crop in that you're harvesting at reproductive maturity, and that's the key thing. So, for example, alfalfa and grasses, you harvest pre-maturity. You're trying to harvest as early as possible to enhance fiber digestibility. But with corn silage, you're harvesting when that seed is set, when that starch is set. And when that happens, that means the fiber is set as well. So whatever happens in, in that growing season to affect fiber digestibility can't be changed. The fiber is already done. So when you're harvesting corn silage, you have two major components that we talked about. You have starch, which is the grain, and you have fiber, which is primarily the stalk and the leaves and the husk. And those things are dramatically different. So for example, starch is never lignified. There's no lignin associated with starch. So as I said before, theoretically, 98% of that is available. It's just the outer shell that causes some problems. Now the fiber is the tricky part. The fiber can change depending on the weather conditions, the uh, the amount of water we get, the amount of heat we get, and that has a big impact on fiber digestibility. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Whatever happens pre-silking or pre-tasseling affects fiber digestibility. So the type of weather we get, so we get, if we get warm, wet conditions, we lower fiber digestibility. If you get dry, hot conditions, you tend to improve fiber digestibility. But once that plant is starting to silk, you're in reproductive uh, maturity and then the fiber is already set. You cannot change it except by some management things that we'll talk about, such as cutting height. So with the weather that we've kind of experienced here in um, mostly yeah. Southwestern Ontario, like in your crystal ball of things, what do you see yeah. coming out of the corn silage crop, you know, well, as think, it stands right now? Yeah. As I recall, the spring was fairly wet which actually decreases fiber digestibility. But I think uh, end of June and 1st of July was very dry and very hot, which theoretically increases fiber digestibility. So I th honestly think it's gonna be a fairly decent year for fiber digestibility. And um, that'll depend on a couple of things. One is the height of the crop, how high that crop is, will make a big difference. Um, but I think we had a combination of, of that wet weather and that dry weather. So it's gonna to be tough to tell. If you had all wet, hot conditions, you get lots of growth and then you'd get low digestibility. So it, we had a bit of both this year. So it's going to be tough to tell. Yeah. I know myself covering a little bit of territory through a bunch of different counties. I know some, some of the stuff down South closer to me, yeah. you know, hasn't really had any setbacks this year. It's been timely rains and, uh, and really nice, nice growth. And then some other stuff. And as you get North, I maybe got a little bit more drought stressed um, yeah. through that June and July and, uh, you know, the corn isn't overly tall, but if you look at some of the ears and I know some uh, cash croppers I've been talking to are uh, doing some ear weights and it looks like the test weight's just going to be off the charts this year in a lot of areas. So it'll be interesting to see how this corn silage turns out. Well, it'll be very interesting because I think 
after silking, that really determines the amount of starch in that plant. So the, the type of weather you get after silking, if you get lots of sun, lots of warm temperatures, you're going to get high starch content and high bushel weight and high bushel per acre. So I think we're going to have a really, really good corn silage crop this year. Well, I know, and I know uh, even Wheat Pete has said it there a few times, but kind of from that Mount Forest down to Guelph has been kind of the, the golden yeah. belt this year. And uh, fortunately, we're right in there. So a lot of the farms I'm calling on or dealing with, um, I, I think we've had it just about perfect. It's We've had some dry weather, but then when just about when we need it, the rain does seem to come. So I think we're, like Keith was saying there, I think we're in for a pretty good year. And uh, we're still a little bit of time away yet to see what actually comes off. But I know there's fields opening up and things uh, even yesterday. So we're right there. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, on that note, I guess, of even opening fields, like, do you want to talk a little bit about timing of harvest and what are some good indicators that we can be looking for uh, to know when it's time to get out in that field there? Yeah, like one of the key things is, is the moisture content or the dry matter content of corn silage. So the ideal is really between 35 and 38% uh, dry matter. That's kind of where you want to be. If you get over 40% dry matter, it's tougher to pack, it's tougher to ensile. There's more chance of wild yeast growth happening in the spring. So, but to be honest, dry matter or moisture content is really a sign of maturity. So the 40% dry matter material is more mature, maybe a little bit more starch, but for the ideal uh, dry matter content, you should aim between 35 and 38%. There does seem to be a bunch of chipper days that we are putting on across the province. Talk to your feed reps and uh, out there, whoever's listening, that they should be able to get that very pretty quickly so you can see right away what your moistures are at and know if you can land in that 35 to 38% dry matter like we recommended there. Anything else out there that uh, you guys like to look for to kind of gauge time of harvest? Anything besides just moisture that guys look at? Well, in the old days, we used to look at the milk line. That was kind of the key thing. But the reality is with some of these stay green varieties, you're, I think you're better off to look at moisture. You can look at both, basically. But moisture content really is a sign of maturity. And uh, you want it at a point where it's easy to ensile uh, and it's not too dry. That's kind of the key thing. And I would point out that when you're talking haylage, it's almost the same number. 35 to 38% dry matter is kind of ideal for haylage. And the reason there is that a lot of people aim for drier, and that tends to improve protein content and protein, the bypass protein, but you have higher leaf loss and it's tougher to pack. So rule of thumb, 35 to 38 for all your, all your wet forages. Right. It kind of works out very easily. Yeah, and I know we're, we'll get into uh, inoculants a little bit later, but I know that uh, you do need that moisture to make sure that you get a good population of those inoculants and, and get that bacteria up and growing. So. Yeah, exactly. So when it comes to, like, I know when we're actually kind of visibly looking at the kernel or, um, and the cobs and we're going to pull them, like, where should we be looking at the uh, milk line and what kind of indicators are we looking when we crack that cob open and look at the kernels? Yeah, I mean, the old rule of thumb was, you know, half milk line, which means you had uh, a lot of the starch accumulated there. Uh, the problem is in some years you see uh, the drop in dry matter happen quite rapidly. So if we get a dry, dry, hot September, that dry matter will drop quite quickly or will increase quite quickly, sorry. And you, you're going to get ahead of yourself. So you're almost better off to start early if, you have, if it's going to take a week or two to harvest all your corn silage because the, uh, the hot, dry weather will increase drying down. And you really want it in that time frame. But about half milk line would 
Yeah, and I know. I think that's maybe some of the issues we're seeing with some yeast and molds this year is that, uh, you know, we had that really, really hot stretch around the farm show last year. And uh, I think a lot of the corn silage, um, and it was a later harvest in general, but I think a lot of the corn silage maybe got away on on people because I know just even uh, looking at people's programs, there's a lot of that 40, 43 dry matter uh, corn silages this year and, and we're seeing increased uh, numbers of yeast and mold. I know I pulled a TMR sample the other day and it was uh, 29 million CFU on the wild yeah. yeast. So I think it was, I forget what the number was exactly, but for every so many million, you're supposed to discount the energy. So I wonder if we just weren't uh, yeah, getting that energy into the cows, the yeast were getting a hold of it before we could, uh, before the cow could. So, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the yeast really, they proliferate in aerobic environment and heat. So what happened this year, we had a hot summer. If you had a bunk face that was open, those yeast multiplied rapidly. So you didn't see a problem in the wintertime in minus 20 degree weather, but man, when it hit this summer, then everything happened. And that's where we saw a lot of drop in butter fat, a drop in intake and some of those problems. Yes, yeah, so if you have a drier corn silage and you have an, and more of an aerobic environment, which is the, it has access to air, which is the outside of the bunk, all those things can impact the yeast growth. So for example, yeast don't survive well in low pH. So and Keith will talk about some inoculants, but if you drive the pH down to low pH, that tends to help a little bit. But you have a hard time doing that in dry corn silage or dry forages. This is why the, the moisture content or the dry matter content is critical to keep that uh, face moist and not wet. But the yeast love to grow and if they have substrate, which is usually starch and sugars, which is corn silage, they grow. What is, like if you're saying a lower pH, what is it? Like are we talking under four and a half, under four? The corn silage is theoretically less than four. So corn silage is an ideal crop to, to ferment and drop the pH. So again, uh, we'll talk about inoculants, but most of those uh, what we call generation one inoculants, which are lactobacillus, that'll drive pH down quite dramatically and preserve the crop. And then you have a high pH. Some of the other inoculants, which are the buchneri, will actually take the lactic acid, which is being produced, and convert that uh, to acetic acid and raise the pH. But what it does... In that situation, it improves stability of the bunk face. You may have, want to have a strategy if you have a wide bunk face to use a buchneri inoculant in there because that's going to preserve bunk face management. It's hard to override a dry forage. That's the problem. It's really tough to do. So you're better off with that 35 to 38% dry matter forage. Some of the questions we get is, you know, how do we transition from green to fermented? How long does yeah. it take to ferment? Like, what should we do? So in a perfect world, say we get it up, get inoculated on it, get it packed well, how long until that new crop is fermented? Yeah, I'd say three weeks, but there's an, a caveat to that. And that is the starch. The, the starch adjustability, especially on dense corn varieties, is slow to break down. And the reason is you have an outer shell and that's a protein matrix called Zian proteins. They take time to break down. So what you need is time in the silo and enzyme production to break down that protein. So for example, a lot of companies talk about you're better to feed their corn silage in three months. Why are they saying that? Well, it's the starch. The starch availability is the, is the thing. So what happens is around January or February, everything seems to work better. The starch is available, things are happening. But in that first month, the starch is not working that well. And the reason is this protein matrix that is, is encapsulating the starch gets a little tough to break down. But it goes into another question, and that's the, uh, we have a lot of questions about flowery corn versus the, the regular dent corn. So here's the difference. 
you're not going to see much difference in fiber digestibility, honestly, between uh, a, flower, a flowery corn, which is a leafy variety, or the regular variety. The fiber digestibility doesn't change hardly at all, depending on the type of uh, plant you're growing, except if you grow a really low lignin corn silage. But what it is, the flowery starch is available faster. So that means if you are harvesting a leafy variety and a non-leafy variety, you're better off to feed the leafy first in the first two months and then go to the non-leafy variety. And the reason is the starch availability is faster, but it's a moot point by about February because they both have high starch availability over time. So by the middle of the winter time, they both will work equally well. And the reason is the starch uh, availability is higher because of the enzymes. Okay? And that won't affect the leafy varieties as much because they're already uh, more of a flowery endosperm. Interesting you're mentioning the leafy because uh, I guess that's one of the questions we had too was, do we treat leafies and BMRs and, and more conventional corns differently when we process and when we come up with chop length and, and things like that? Like, do we treat these corns differently or do we treat them all the same and then deal with them after, I guess, is the question. Well, if you go back to my first comment that you're really dealing with two components, one is fiber and one is starch. On the BMR varieties, you're, you're looking at a lower lignin and a more fragile lignin complex that will break down faster. But... I still don't think the length of cut should be uh, changed. I think we need the same length of cut. Then you're looking at starch. So we know the leafy has a more flowery starch. It'll break down faster. All the other varieties don't have that, except there are some new uh, areas of research in the BMR where they're looking at more of a uh, faster or flowery um, endosperm in the corn. So the reality is when you're dealing with two different things, one, with the BMR, you get faster and higher fiber digestibility. We know that. But I don't think that should affect length of cut. The starch side, a leafy versus a, a BMR or the other ones, you're going to see not much of a difference in January or February. You will see it in November or October. That's the key difference. What is your ideal cut length for a processed corn silage? Basically, cut length is going to be a key topic in the next few years. And... The reality across the world, people tend to cut either too fine or too long, or you have one silage that's too fine and one silage too long. The idea for TMR is a homogeneous mix with the cut length relatively the same. So here's the, here's the concept. You want between 12 and 19 millimeters, which is a half inch to three quarter inch. But where I'm going to go is likely 16 millimeters is ideal length of cut. That means it's a little higher than half inch, it's, it's less than three quarter inch. Uh, you're gonna get, I think, better packing in the bunk. And it, the reality is anything over 19 millimeters, the cow has to break down by eating, not by cut chewing. This is the key concept. So if you get long haylage, for example, is longer than 19 millimeters, let's say it's uh, 30 millimeters or two and a half inches, the cow has to eat to break that fiber length down but when she brings the cut up, all the cud is between 10 and 12 millimeters. So it makes no difference on the cud. So the longer you, the material you have, that means more time eating and less time cud chewing. The reality is cud chewing is where rumen digestion really happens. You need cud chewing. And the eating is just a way to break down the fiber to appropriate length. So you're just saying that they have to chew more. Like I'm asking when they're eating, they just have to chew more like to initially get that totally. longer fiber. Okay. Yes, exactly. So let's say you have dry hay and it's four inches long. Well, that's got to be broken down to about a half inch or three quarter inch. So how does the cow do it? She eats and she grinds and she tears it apart 
it goes into the rumen, then to produce a cut, it's got to be about 10 to 12 millimeters. Then it comes back and cud chewing happens. The reality is rumination is a combination of cud chewing and eating. And if you have a longer time eating, you have less time cud chewing. If you have longer time cud chewing, you have less time eating. And so length of cut has a huge impact on that. And you want more cud chewing. The cow is abrading the fiber, ripping the fiber apart, and allowing the bacteria to enter the fiber. And this is where you're going to get the best digestion. So I think 16 millimeters is a happy uh, combination right in the middle. So it's a little more than half inch, a little less than three quarter inch. So I know we talked about three quarter inch a lot in the past, but I, the reality is you're getting pieces of the cow can sort sometimes, especially if it's dry and uh, it won't pack as well. I've seen the opposite side of that as well. There was a, a farm, this was a few years ago, but I remember, and it, it wasn't actually a customer, but it was a farm I called on and they were struggling and struggling to get their fat. And I think they were cutting around between a quarter and a half an inch. So there was fairly fine stuff. So it didn't really matter whatever they did to try and get it working and try and get fat and everything balanced properly. But initially it just comes down to that physical or effective fiber was just not there with the silage, right? Which is a big part of most dairy rations. So it's huge. So I, I've spoken in Eastern Europe and in Eastern Europe, um, in some areas, they, they actually harvest between five and eight millimeters, which is extremely fine. And they harvest at 40% dry matter. So the question is, why would they do that? The reason they're doing that is they don't kernel process. They want to tear apart that, that, uh, that starch and, and make it more available. But the reality is you've lost all the fiber. The, fiber the, the passage rate is so high, there's virtually no cut chewing. That fiber is passing that cow and ending up in the manure. So if you're growing a crop that's fiber and starch, you've lost the fiber. So there's no point in doing that. You, they would be better off just harvesting high moisture corn, to be, to be honest. Yeah. So you More have to product be like cob meal. Exactly, because it doesn't, you're not getting the fiber benefit of the stock. You've lost that, and that's because of passage rate. Somewhere between 12 and 19, so I'm saying 16 is kind of ideal. It's right in that mid midpoint, and uh, that'll work very, very well. So that like five-eighths area, like five-eighths yeah. of an inch, I guess, for exactly. the imperial folk out there. Yes, exactly. Now, the key thing with uh, corn silage is easy to maintain the length because you're, you're chopping a stock. The leaves don't matter as much, but with things like grass and alfalfa, I tend to go a little bit longer. And the reason is you get more variation in cut length, if that makes sense. So if you're cutting grass, for example, you're going to get some pieces are going to be 25 millimeters, some are going to be 12. It's all over the board, even if you aim at 16. So I tend to go a little higher there because you're going to have a wider distribution of, you know, particles that are small and particles that are high. But corn silage is a big stock. It's easy to cut if the knives are, are sharp. Do you want to just maybe talk about some of the pluses and minuses of processing and not? Because there are definitely still guys that are not processing their corn silage. Yes. So basically, kernel processing is designed to process the kernel. That's the key thing. So all you're looking at is starch availability. So theoretically, the finer, the better. That's, that's bottom line. The finer, the better is, is the way you want to go. The research shows it has no impact on fiber digestibility. So that's one thing you got to think about. It does not change fiber digestibility at all. So you're not affecting the fiber. You're not changing that at all. It's just starch. So to me, the finer, the better. Now, it takes more power and more energy to do that, but you want it fine to get that starch available. And that's kind of the key thing. So I really think as fine as you can make it is kind of the key. Yeah. The fiber will be intact. The fiber will be intact. It's not going to change the fiber digestibility. Yeah, I know. So when producers are looking at, uh, like I know we do the half liter cups or whatever, like what should, you know, ideally, what should we be seeing? Like, 
I know the old rule was two kernels, half or half or more, not processed. But I, I know I've been reading some stuff lately that you know you don't want to see anything bigger than you know a half a kernel in there. Yeah, exactly. To me, the finer the better. So I don't know, it's hard to describe, but um, those chunks have that outer protein matrix on them, right? You're trying to rip that apart a little bit. So the one thing to think about though, is you are exposing starch. That's the one thing. So even if it's, it's cracked, the starch is exposed. And sometimes what you see in the manure is that outer shell, which is the protein side. So it's not the starch. So the, the, the way to do this is to me, the finer, the better, that's gonna help things a little bit. But then at some point test the manure and just see, is it 3%, 5%, 6% starch in manure? then you can make some adjustments to the ration. But again, over time, things will improve. So if you leave that, that corn silage for three months, the enzymes start to work at that outer shell and it'll break down anyway. So it's really the advantage is in October, November. That makes sense? And that's the advantage, right? You're trying to make things available right now. If you have lots of supply and you, you don't have to feed this till January, then you know, it's, it's kind of a moot point. It will be available by that point. I wonder about cutting height, if you wanted to talk about cutting height of the corn silage. This is the most well-known research in the world in that everyone has research on cutting height. The bottom line, when you cut higher, you're taking the bottom part of the plant off, which is low, low, low digestibility. And the bottom six inches are very indigestible. The next six inches are moderately digestible and the upper part of the plant is highly digestible. So bottom line, the research is very sound. If you take off higher length of cut, sorry, higher, higher height, you're improving the amount of starch in the plant and you're improving fiber digestibility. Now, I've done surveys of audiences in Ontario. Everyone knows this, but most people, I, I see a tendency, don't cut high. They cut at about six inches. And it's something to think about. Look at your corn silage. If it's over the top of the tractor, I'd cut it higher. If it's below the tires, you know, cut it lower. It's, it just will improve digestibility of the fiber. It's kind I, of know, I know there's a couple things that I always talk to producers, like when you get that really high corn silage, you're either going to put it through, you're either going to put that corn through your corn silage by cutting it higher, or you're going to have to buy it to kind of supplement a little bit to get the energy in there. Because every time, the more lignin we have, just the less energy is going to be in the diet. So we're going to have to supplement it somehow uh, to get that energy density where you want it. And I know there was a lot of research coming out of minor about the uh, um, NDF and uh, how it limits intake. So the higher the NDF, the diet, the less intake we're going to have. So. Yeah, no, exactly. And the, and the other thing we're looking at is UNDF, which is undigestible NDF. And that's kind of a key number to start to look at. But UNDF is a 240 hour measurement that really shows how unavailable it is. And uh, in our system, we would look at a, a number called G fraction, and that would tell us how unavailable that product is. And you see a huge variation, huge variation. So to me, I'm always a proponent of the best fiber digestibility possible is the best way to get production. So almost always cut it higher, but you know, it depends on tonnage and inventory and all those other things. It looks like a lot of places across the province. I mean, out east sounds like it might be a little bit of a different story, but central or western Ontario it looks like we're going to have a, a pretty good crop so this would be a year that I think you could go higher still have lots of inventory and really increase your uh, your grain percentage in the sample right your starch carbohydrate that's however you want to talk about it in your uh, your silage sample. Let's uh let's shift gears a little bit here Bill and talk about uh, one of my favorite subjects is density. 
what is what should what should the tool the target or the goal be uh for density on our corn silages in bunker silos um i forget the numbers piece and i think it's is it 15 <laughs> and the problem is we use pounds and we use metric and i always get that confused. Yeah. i'll throw it back to you keith but there must be a number like 15 pounds per well I, I think like a minimum i think the research will tell you 15 to that 15 to 16 pounds of dry matter per cubic foot but i mean more is always better especially if you're a little bit challenged for uh for having enough space for inventory i mean the higher the density that you put in there the more just feed you can put in that bunk and it's gonna it's gonna shrink less it's gonna and it's gonna ferment better you know it's all about aerobic stability so the tighter you can pack that and get that um oxygen out of there the better off that fermentation is going to be so um you know, I've, I've seen anywhere from 12 to 22 on farms here in Ontario. And, uh, you know, if you're always looking at the, at the higher end of it, you know, that high teens, low twenties, you generally don't see a whole lot of spoilage on that pile either. And, uh, yeah, it denser is better, more dense. But I guess the key thing is what are the key factors then to go from a 12 to a 22? Like how do those guys do it? What's the key? Uh, it's a combination. I think it's a little bit of chop length, like you had mentioned earlier. Like I think if you're going to chop at that uh, three, like twenty to twenty-five mil, and it's yeah. a little bit drier, you're just not going to be able to get the density there. You know, you always hear uh, producers complain about packing things like rye and oats and things like that after it's gone to gone into reproductive because all of a sudden that stem isn't a stem; it's more like a straw. Like it's not leafy, so it's a lot tougher to pack. So the corn is a lot like that too, where it just doesn't seem to mesh together and you just can't get the, the density out of it. But back to it, it comes down to chop length, moisture, uh, delivery rate from the field. So I know the kind of the rule that everybody looks at is 800 pounds of tractor weight per ton of uh, silage per hour. So like if you're bringing in a hundred thousand or if you're bringing in a hundred tons of silage an hour, which is, I think relatively standard when, when we get into corn silage, you know, you're going to want to have 80,000 pounds of tractor weight um, on that pile. And then there's a lot of other things too, layers, how thick that layer is going to be um, what you're pushing it with things like that, that are, are really going to affect the, the density. But I think it's one of those things that farmers really resonate with them because it's something that is tangible and they can see. So when we get out there and get talking and doing densities in the winter and in, in the summer, it's one of those things that we can really, you know, impact the outcome of the feed without much of a time investment. Like it's just time packing or, or repetitions over it that will really increase it. So basically the simple equation for anybody doing a bunker is just your tractor weight divided by 800 pounds. will tell you um, how many pounds you should be bringing in an hour. So, what Keith had just said there, the 80,000 per a hundred tons makes sense. On some of these bigger piles too, I'm seeing a lot more, uh, a trend to having, you know, multiple packing units on there because even these articulate tractors are, if you can get them up to 60,000 pounds, you're really pushing it. Like a lot of them are that 45 to 55,000 pounds, even loaded with fuel and, and weighted up. Um, because everything that we're trying to do in silage, we're trying to prevent in the spring. Uh, with compaction so you know you want a lighter tractor going across the field in the spring or you're going to see it all summer but then when it comes to silage time you know you're going to want more weight on that machine so I, i've definitely seen a trend to uh you know putting a second unit or even sometimes a third unit if you get in some 80 foot 
wide piles or 60 foot wide bunks and or some of these drive over piles that we're uh, starting to see pop up around the country so yeah for sure um Keith and Bill, I mean, this next topic I think we should jump into is inoculants, which is a little bit more out of my realm. But um, do we want to we want to give a kind of inoculant one hundred and one, and then uh, and then kind of talk about some of the different varieties and things like that? So maybe Bill, what what are inoculants and how do they kind of work to improve uh, our corn silage for this year? Yeah. So what what's happening is that there there are wild bacteria in the field, and when you bring them in, they're going to go through some sort of a fermentation pattern. So with inoculants, what you're doing is controlling the fermentation pattern. That's probably the key difference. So without inoculants, you have virtually no control. You're letting it up to nature to do the, the fermentation other than packing the stuff. But with inoculants, you have a controlled fermentation pattern. And that's what you want. So you're trying to drive the pH down. You're trying to, I mean, the packing is trying to make it more of an anaerobic environment. Then you're trying to drive the pH down. And when you drive the pH down, you stop some of these things growing like the yeast and that type of thing. So you have a controlled uh, fermentation pattern. That's really the key. And that will improve, uh, will reduce dry matter loss and improve the quality of the silage. Is there anything specific within the inoculants that we should be looking for? Like when it comes to like bacteria strains and things like that? Yeah, there's um, basically there's three generations of inoculants. Generation one is the typical lacto, lactobacillus type uh, product that drives the pH down by producing lactic acid. And that's been a very effective way of bringing the pH down. So when we talk about a pH of 3.8, that's because that lactic acid is a very strong acid and, and it stabilizes the, uh, the, uh, the pH in the, in the silo. Generation two was... Um, called a, um, bringing in ingredients like the buchneri inoculants. And the buchneri inoculants, what they do is take the lactic acid, consume it, and make acetic acid, and actually bring the pH up a little bit. But when they do that, it improves stability of the bunk face. So I'm, I'm thinking most bunk silos should use a combination of the lactobacillus and the buchneri, or the buchneri to improve the face of the the bunk. And the other area is these large bags that we don't get through quickly enough. So if you have a, you know, a 10 or 12 foot bag and you have a 60 cow herd, I think you need a buchneri in there just to, to improve bunk face is kind of the idea. There's a third generation that has been worked on and that's where the bacteria actually produce enzymes and these enzymes over time can break down, break down fiber. So basically you need an inoculant even though corn silage is ideally suited to ferment because it has sugar content, it has low protein, uh, has low mineral content, but you still need it to make a high quality silage. I think the biggest question I get out there around inoculants is how do we know whether it's actually paying for itself? Yeah, the problem is hard to see. That's the problem. And, and you, don't, you don't usually do one bunk with and one bunk without and make some comparisons. It's really tough to do. But bottom line, the research has, has been going on for the last 30 or 40 years. It's very, very sound research. You, you do improve quality. You do improve or reduce dry matter loss. You get more uh, tonnage and more tonnage that's going to work for the cow. So there's enough research out there shows it works. Uh, but then, you know, application makes a difference, how you apply it, uh, the moisture content, all those things have an impact as well on how it works. Yeah. But it does. I think there's enough research showing it works. It makes sense. Yeah, I know it's uh, one thing I always look at and it's easy to 
tell if they get their inoculant on right is just kind of the bunk pile. So if they put a crown on the bunk, a lot of times you'll see that around the sidewall start to shrink down a little bit. And if you kind of take pictures of that over the years, you'll see that drop and drop and drop. And so that's dry matter loss. And I think that's where inoculant really shines more than anything is that you just, the research will tell you that too. You just lose less dry matter and, you know, at $20,000 an acre, we've got to do things that maybe we didn't have to 20 years ago to try and keep more silage on the farm. So um, just having less shrink by less dry matter loss on that stuff can, you know, save an acre or two of corn silage. So it's one of those things is you can do the economics on it. And I would say 95% of the time inoculants going to pay. But on that note too, I was told a long time ago, you can't turn a sow's ear into a silk purse. So if you're not doing the things that have, you know, that we've talked about already with moisture, cut length and density, no matter what you put on that pile, it's not going to make it any better on feed out. You know, it's all about upfront preventative things that we do now to make that crop viable for the rest of the winter and the rest of the year. So I think it's really important that we uh, kind of stress that. So one of my pet peeves is if we don't inoculate the silage and then we have some spoilage, and then what do we do with the spoilage? We tend to feed it to the heifers and the dry cows, and that is probably the worst place to do it. <laughs> I mean, basically, it's, it should become compost. But a lot of times it goes there because we're, we're worried about affecting the milk production of those cows, which makes sense. But the dry cow, never. The heifer, you know, that's your future. I don't know if I'd feed it there either. So basically, it should go back in, on the field and uh, or compost or that type of thing. So... Well, it is compost. <laughs> if right. you think about it, like the difference between silage and compost is anaerobic versus aerobic. So compost is aerobic, silage is anaerobic. So with silage, we want all the oxygen out. With aerobic stuff, we want the oxygen there so it actually composts. So that's essentially what the top of the pile is. So you're feeding compost to the calves and dry cows. Yeah, exactly. So I don't, I don't know if you'd go out to the store and buy compost to do that but you know inadvertently we're doing it on the farm sometimes yeah exactly one last thing i want to talk about bill and the last thing is covering there's always debates on farm do i use sidewall plastic do i use the oxygen barrier saran wrap type things for the silage like in your vast experience what do you see works the best I think the oxygen barriers work extremely well. So that thin plastic layer on top immediately seals the silo and then the, then the plastic goes on top of that. Almost every, what we call perfect bunk, tends to have that. Uh, and the key though is also going down the side walls on the inside to make sure that is covered as well. That's kind of the key thing. So I think they, they do work. They do work very, very well. Yeah, and what are your thoughts on sidewall plastic? I know I hear... Uh... I hear some arguments when it comes to producers because, hey, you know, I'm going to hit the I'm going to hit the side of the bunk and we're going to rip a big hole in it and it's just a pain. And so, so what do you what do you think about sidewall plastic? Oh, I think it makes sense, but I understand the concerns of the producer. It is hard to manage and hard to put on and hard to deal with when you're trying to you know get feed out. So I understand that, but it does give you a better uh, preservation of that silage. It does improve things. Now, the favorite part of the podcast is the questions from the crowd. So I'll start off here. 
What is the best way to transition from fermented corn silage to unfermented corn silage? Okay, so the best way is um, always feed fermented corn silage. <laughs> <laughs> I figured that one was coming. <laughs> if you can wait for two weeks, three weeks, that'd be ideal. Like the first, it's funny, if you feed green chopped corn silage, the cows are happy. Everything's going well. But then about a week later, things all fall apart. So if you can wait till that two-week mark or three-week mark, it, it tends to help. And then I tend to do things that will help rumen function. So add extra yeast, extra bicarb, do some of those things will at least keep the rumen working. That's kind of the key thing. And then, you know, by three or four weeks, it'll be okay. But you're going to see a dip in production if you go too fast into that, uh, into that silage. Yeah, I wonder if it's just because we get it through that heat or you start feeding it through that heating phase and it just turns the cows right off. So, Yeah, intakes go down. They don't like it as much. So if you can get past that point, that's kind of the ideal. One of the other questions that came in is how often uh, should knives and harvesters be sharpened and kernel processing checked? That's not part of my expertise. I'm not sure. I just know that sharp knives make a huge difference. And you can see that sometimes when you see trash. Everyone complains about the leaves and that type of thing. It's because the leaves are just being pulled through and they're not, not being cut properly. So, But uh, I don't know how often you sharpen them. I really don't. So I did a little bit of research on that one and talked to some custom operators and some people who are running uh, forage harvesters and their kind of sentiment was you should do your knives every couple hours still stop and and do knives every couple hours and it's usually not that difficult in corn silage especially if if you've got a little bit of gap between uh, wagons and things like that like if you're maybe going a little bit farther away from the bunk then uh, or you've got to travel a little bit on the road with the with some of the stuff so there is enough time to sit and stop usually for the operator every couple of hours if not they just stop and they need to have a bio break as well too sometimes so they sit there and, and sharpen the harvester. And then the processor, generally what the, I asked a custom operator about this, and he goes, once it's set right, you shouldn't have to check it. But he also said uh, every couple of days, and as the corn changes and gets a little bit drier, you just got to make sure that it's still doing a good job. So, But a lot of times once they get it set to that one mill, you know, it's going to stay that way through through harvest. So, And the million dollar question to high chop or low chop? I, th- I think there's a lot of nuance to this question uh, this year, just depending the type of or where you ge- or geographically where you are in the province. But Bill, you know, it's an ideal world. We've got some nice 12 foot tall corn silage, some 10 foot tall corn silage. Maybe it's a little drought stressed in the spring. Maybe it's had a great growing season. What would the general rec be on that? Well, the general recommendation is to build a plant that tall the plant has to incorporate a lot of lignin into the bottom part of the plant for the structure. It's just like a building, uh, a building, basically. You need structure in the bottom at the base to hold the plant up. And as soon as you do that, you lose digestibility. So to me, you cut higher. With some of these corns, like we see them changing where the ear set's a little bit higher. So does that mean that there's more lignin below the ear set? Like, does it make more sense? Like, I know leafy, they always say, you know, seven to nine leaves above the cob, you know, grain varieties are going to be less than that. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. I just know that there's not a huge difference in fiber digestibility between silage varieties, unless you go to a low lignin, like a BMR type corn silage. And there you see a remarkable difference. But between a grain corn or a dual purpose or a leafy, not a, not a huge difference in, in fiber digestibility. One of the other ones that just came up was just uh, nitrates in general, which I think you guys kind of covered two weeks ago there, Keith. Did we want to touch on that a bit? Or Yeah, like I don't think like with the amount of rain that we've had come through Ontario in the last little bit, 
I don't think uh, nitrates are going to be the issue that we thought they might have been, you know, two weeks ago with a lot more drought stress stuff. I think the corn's kind of got that nitrogen up in the plant and converted it. I think we should be okay now. Um, maybe Eastern Ontario might be a little bit more nitrate susceptible, but it sounds like they've been getting some rain in the last little bit as well. So, Is there any final thoughts you wanted to leave with everybody, Bill or, or Keith as well, I guess? Just that corn silage is an amazing crop, but it is in, in Ontario, in a lot of cases, half grain. So half the corn silage is grain. And I think a lot of times we forget that. So what you have is a stock with grain and Basically, the higher the grain content in the corn silage, the less grain we feed. And there's a very strong correlation between those two because the grain in corn silage is high moisture corn. And it's likely in, in that 35% to 30% uh, moisture content. So it's, it's, uh, it's high moisture corn, basically. So when you feed heavy corn silage, you back off on the corn in the, right. uh, in the TMR. Yeah, I guess my final thoughts would be just to uh, stay safe out there, everybody. There's a lot of moving parts and a lot of things going. You know, people are tired. Um, a lot of long days and long nights this time of year. I know usually corn silage or fourth cut then corn silage and then some cover crop chopping. So the next uh, three to four weeks are usually pretty uh, pretty busy around the countryside. Um, so stay safe out there. And uh, yeah, just uh, make sure you, everybody gets home to their loved ones every night because we would uh, hate when uh, we see farmers become statistics. So um, yeah, just stay safe out there, everybody. The one, the one last thing I thought I'd touch on to close off was that the feed we put in at this time of year is your feed for the next year. And so oftentimes we see guys cut corners. They want to get it done quick and fast and I would just say, take that little bit of extra time, make sure the processing is done properly. If you have custom workers come in, don't be afraid to make your uh, requests known to them because I see that happen too often as well. They say, oh, well, the custom guy came in and did it and this is how he had it set. Well, that's the feed you have in your bunk for the rest of that year. So make sure it's in there properly, make sure it's processed properly. We know that forages are gonna be the biggest driver for uh, purchase feed costs that coming year as well. So. Uh, whether that's your haylage, most of the haylage is already in for the year now, but there might be some third and fourth coming yet. Also, your corn silage here is going to be a big driver on uh, determining how much grain you have to feed the rest of this year as well. So make sure what you have in those bunks is the best quality possible. It's really going to impact your purchase feed cost for the rest of that year and uh, make the best chance for your cows to make them the best, uh, the most milk possible this coming year. So Good. Okay. Well, thanks so much, guys. Bill, uh, we really appreciate your time today. Thanks for jumping on with us. Good luck to everybody out there making silage in the next coming weeks. And uh, good luck with everything. Thanks for now, guys. Thanks. Thanks. Hey, guys. Thanks for tuning in this week. We really are trying to keep this podcast product and ad free. However, if you have any questions about what you've been hearing, we strongly recommend reaching out to your nearest SureGain dealership. We have reps across Ontario, Canada, and the USA that would love to come to your farm and offer solutions to those problems that have been keeping you from achieving your goals. Please feel free to share this podcast with anyone that you think might benefit from this information or on your social media platform of choice. I also encourage you to tune into Keith Schweitzer's YouTube channel. We'll be releasing podcast episodes every other Thursday, and Keith will be releasing YouTube videos on the opposite weeks. We appreciate your support and I look forward to sharing with you real soon.